John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Thanks, Kirsten. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as we just heard in the coming of Jesus, you have made yourself known to us and the longing of our hearts is to know you. Deepest hunger that we have. And we pray even this morning you'd help us to see more of who you are, who you've shown yourself to be, in your son. We pray that the grace and truth that Jesus brings, we might understand and rejoice in uh, more and more. For his name's sake, amen. Well, I said last time that a a wonder-filled Christmas is what I want for myself, what I want for all of us. Um, Not the one that we might just simply try and create with Christmas lights and decorations with the feast and presents that uh, we'll enjoy tomorrow, all those things though being good. But the wonder that is stirred as we see and marvel afresh at what happened that first Christmas. And uh, I mentioned again last week, um, Dorothy says, the writer, trying to um, convey the massiveness of what happened, massive such that everything else in human history essentially is dwarfed by it. She wrote this, from the beginning of time until now, 
this is the only thing that has ever really happened. Everything else pales into insignificance alongside it. We've been looking at John's account, which is perhaps the most stripped-back account of Christmas. There's no star or stable or shepherds or wise men, no Mary and Joseph even. And yet, John captures for us, perhaps more better than anyone else, the breathtaking magnificence of what happened at Christmas. And it should, I hope, stir our wonder and blow our minds. Last week we looked at the, last, the, the, the first um, 13 verses where John introduced us to the Word. The Word, he told us, uh, was with God in the beginning and was God. The Word is all that God is, and yet um, not all there is of God. There's distinction between the Word and God, and yet a profound unity. The Word is the one, John says, through whom all things were made, without whom nothing was made that has been made. He is the life and soul of all creation. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And we saw last time how John says the Word was coming into the world. Coming, he said, to that which was his own. But he's not yet explained how the word was to come. Would it be another burning bush kind of thing or, or mountaintop pyrotechnics like we saw in, in the book of Exodus? Will he come riding some weird angelic chariot as he does in Ezekiel's vision? Oh no, much more amazing. John says the word became flesh. And I think it's striking how he says not simply the word became a man, a human being. It's as though John wants to shock us to see this extraordinary truth of the incarnation of becoming flesh. Flesh suggests humanity in its creatureliness, in its weakness and uh, um, corruptibility. Jesus was not simply God with skin on. He was fully and truly human. Same stuff as us, through and through. It's not that he ceased to be the word. He didn't strip himself of his divinity. No, but he took on our humanity. So still fully God, but now also fully and completely human. Still, the infinite, eternal Son of God, sustaining all things by his powerful word, and yet become a fetus in his mother's womb, sustained, as it were, by her. Still the word, and yet at the same time a baby unable to speak, only to cry. The word became flesh. That is so beyond our understanding, so mind-boggling. That, just those four words, should stir our wonder afresh at Christmas. But from our verses, I want um, particularly for us to think about why. Why the word became flesh. John speaks of what we see in him and what we receive from him. 
So we're going to have two headings, what we see and what he brings from our verse, which is 14 to 18. So first, what we see. And in one sense, if we'd been there, of course, what we would have seen was flesh, a baby in a manger, or a man in a carpenter's shop, or preaching to crowds, or a man being treated pretty much like meat, flesh, as he's humiliated, naked, bloody, nailed to a cross. If we'd been there, we would have seen flesh, someone like us. But look what John says, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. What we see, John says, is glory. Throughout this term, we've been looking at the book of Exodus, and John seems very much to have the book of Exodus in his mind as he writes these verses. There are lots of allusions to what happens in Exodus. And you may remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the passage where Moses asked God, let me see your glory. And God said to Moses, I think you're asking a bit too much, actually. You can't. You wouldn't be able to, to cope No one may see me and live. And Moses is told to hide in a cleft in the rock. And God said, I'll I'll cover you with my hand and pass by. And then when I've passed, I'll let you just glimpse my back. Of course, that's metaphor. God doesn't have a hand physically or a back. It's trying to express the inexpressible. But in some way, there was a fullness of God's glory which Moses was unable to see. But when the word, the word who was God, became flesh, John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Or look on to verse 18, the end of our little section. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus, wonderfully, is God's full self-disclosure. The invisible God made visible for us. So that actually, later in John's Gospel, when one of the disciples, Philip, says to Jesus, oh, show us the Father, that will be enough for us. And Jesus replies, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Not one and the same, but profoundly one. Distinct and yet perfectly united. So, glory. God is now revealed in a way that we can grasp in a way that Moses couldn't see God's glory, but now the word made flesh, we are able to see and grasp his glory. This is a not very good illustration, but seeing Monty the back, I think your latest book is on gut biomes. Is that the thing? Gut biome is the talk of every household, I'm sure. It's become a sort of thing to talk about and worry about, all these millions of bacteria 
in our gut. Okay, this is a silly illustration, but imagine some bacteria in my gut talking to each other and saying, do you think this is all it is, all there is? Do you think there's, do you think there's anyone beyond this place where we are, this rather dark and miserable place? And if there is, what, how, how could we ever know? And it's no good me sort of shouting at my, my insides and saying, it's me, I'm here. Of course, they can't take that in. The only sort of way one might conceive of it is if I were to become a bacteria, enter my intestine, and uh, make myself known. That's a rather disgusting idea. But can I say, <laughs> that is nothing compared to the extraordinary truth of the word becoming flesh, the creator entering in to his creation, that we might see his glory and know him. If we were to look in the manger, we would see God. God could be seen extraordinarily. God could be touched. John, in his, in his first letter, says this, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've um, seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and which our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We have seen his glory, glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. But that glory wasn't some kind of luminescence that surrounded Jesus. Uh, John saw it, but most people didn't see his glory, of course. There was a hiddenness to it, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, as the, the, the carol puts it. Most people, if they looked in the manger, all they saw was a baby. Isn't this the carpenter's son, they said, as they heard his claims and saw his miracles. And as they looked at Jesus on the cross, they mocked and scoffed and ridiculed him. And yet, strangely, John says it was at that moment especially that Jesus' glory was displayed, but only for those with eyes to see. What about for us, though? We, we weren't there. We're 2,000 years too late to have seen his glory. So how does this help us? Well, John keeps reminding us that as we hear the witness of those who were there, that is the key thing, um, the witness that is given. That's how we as readers can also see his glory. So he mentions John's witness again in verse 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And at the end of the gospel, when Thomas, another disciple, finally sees and believes and says, my Lord and my God at last, I see the glory of the one and only. Well, Jesus says to him, uh, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. And you might say, but if we can't see, how, how can we believe? And John goes on to write, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that 
you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We have in our hands, John says, the very thing by which we today can see the glory of the one and only Son through the witness of those who were there. A wonder-filled Christmas, a wonder-filled New Year is one in which we see the glory of the one and only Son, the one who is himself God, the closest relationship with the Father. And if we want to see his glory more clearly, well, pray. Pray that your eyes might be opened and read. It's in the written word, John says, that we will be helped to see the glory of the eternal word, the word made flesh. So he tells us what we see. We see his glory, but John also tells us what we receive from him. And that's our second heading, what he brings. And we'll see there are two things that John particularly draws our attention to, that Jesus brings, grace and truth. But before we get to that, look again at verse 14. He writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You may well know this, but, but John doesn't simply write lived among us. The word he uses literally means pitched his tent among us. And it's a word that implies not so much the temporary nature of his home with us, as though he's just camping for a bit. It wasn't a sort of permanent home. Now that idea of pitching his tent speaks not of so much temporariness, but the significance of his home with us. We might have translated it, he tabernacled with us. The tabernacle was the tent we, we saw in Exodus, the climax, really, of the book of Exodus, the place whereby God came to dwell in the midst of his people. And he came and tabernacled with them then, not to get something from them, worship and obeisance. God, the holy God, wanted to dwell in the midst of his sinful people that he might give something to them that he might bless them. The tabernacle was the place of atonement, whereby they might know fellowship with the Holy God, peace with him, know his blessing. So that's the background. And when the word similarly became flesh and tabernacled among us, Jesus did not come to get something from us. He came to give something to us. He came to bring blessing. And we'll see, John draws, draws our attention to two things especially. It's grace and truth. So verse 14 goes on. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or again, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We're just going to think briefly about those two things, grace and truth. So first, grace. Grace, of course, means God's unearned, undeserved love for us. It's perhaps an idea we're very, very familiar with, most of us. 
and we kind of take it a bit for granted. I mean, Christmas is all about getting presents, so we kind of expect grace, I suppose, maybe. But if we are to wonder at Christmas as we should, well, that he comes full of grace is something that should stir our wonder. He came full of grace, and out of that fullness, he came to give us grace, fullness of grace, actually, grace that can't be added to, can't be improved upon. Just as um, Jesus surpassed John, as John said, so the grace that Jesus brings surpassed all grace that had ever been given before then. It was all-surpassing grace. So he writes, verse 16, out of his fullness... We have all received grace in place of grace already given. And that's explained then in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The grace already given, clearly he was referring to the law, the law that came through Moses. And we might think that wasn't a particularly great gift of grace. We might imagine that's a rather sort of... um, Horrible gift to be given, a whole list of rules, who'd want that? But the Bible is clear that the law was a good and kind gift of God to his people. And the psalm says this, He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He's done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. In the Old Testament, they were very clear. The law was a good and kind gift. But what is now ours in Christ is much, much better. Grace in place of grace already given. It's the fullness of grace. What the previous gift of grace had pointed to. When I'm in a restaurant, which isn't very often, but what I am, I, I rather enjoy looking at the menu. It's a rather nice thing. All these wonderful things on offer. If you like, the law is the menu. Jesus is the meal. The actual food, that's the thing that was promised by the menu. Or or the law is like reading a travel brochure and imagine this wonderful holiday you might go on. Jesus is the holiday. Grace in place of grace already given. The fullness of grace comes in him. The word became flesh. And tabernacled with us so that we might receive from him, find in him God's grace. Jesus did not come to tell us to have a quiet time every day this coming year. He didn't come to tell us to be better parents. He didn't come to tell us to witness more to our friends. Jesus came to give us grace wonderfully. I guess we know that. We know it very well. But if you're anything like me, you struggle really to grasp it, to believe it. That that is what Jesus wants to give me. Grace. For that is the great purpose God is working in all things for, that one day all creation might marvel at the glorious grace that has been given to us in Christ. For all eternity... He wants all creation just to be thinking how wonderfully kind and gracious God has been to his people. 
And if that's the case, how do you think God is going to treat you today? Or this coming year, if you're a Christian? Maybe at the moment, Christmas is hard. Maybe you're facing all manner of difficulties, baffling things happening in your life, and you wonder what God is doing. But Christmas assures us that God is being unfailingly gracious. Christmas is God's declaration to us of his determination to give us grace. Jesus came full of grace. And then also full of truth. And I think in particular that does mean the truth about God. As he says in verse 18, no one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son is, in, is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. As we look at Jesus, we can say that is exactly what God is like. Isn't that wonderful? All the truth of God revealed to us in the Lord Jesus. But I think that he comes full of truth perhaps isn't limited to the truth about God. It may well mean truth in the, in the fullest sense. We are living in a world, caught in a world of lies and deceit and half-truths and ignorance. And Jesus says the light comes to bring truth. Truth, he says, that will set us free. In fact, of course, he'll say later in this gospel, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the end of all our searching. Lies are sometimes precious things to us. We cling on to certain lies in a foolish way. But deep down, we long for truth. And Jesus is the one who comes full of truth. But that word truth might also have the sense of faithfulness. As I said, there's lots of echoes of the book of Exodus here. And you remember when, when God sort of partially revealed his glory to Moses, one thing he did was to proclaim his name, his character. And he said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love and faithfulness. And that pair, love and faithfulness, recur again and again in the Old Testament. They, if you like, are, are, are a beautiful summary of all that God is and what he's like, God of love and faithfulness. And there may be an echo of that in our, this pair, grace and truth. Grace that speaks of his love. And truth may in part be expressing God's faithfulness. All God's faithfulness comes to us in the Lord Jesus. All God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. To have received Jesus is to know and enjoy God's perfect faithfulness, whatever today holds, whatever tomorrow brings, because Jesus is full of truth. Sometimes you might say to someone, show us what you're made of, and you sort of mean, you know, I don't know, show us your gifts or your character as you really are, show us what you're made of. If we said that to Jesus, what he would show us is grace and truth. For he came from the Father full of grace and truth. And that's what he's come to give to us. That's what we find in him. What we receive from him as we 
receive him into our lives, grace and truth, the abounding love and faithfulness of God. And we won't get a better present tomorrow than that. If we've received Jesus, believed in him, then that's what we can assuredly know today and tomorrow and for all eternity. For again, verse 14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Let me pray. Father, for those of us for whom these things are familiar, very familiar, please will you stir our hearts these coming days to fresh wonder at these truths. What it meant for the word to become flesh, to dwell among us. Help us to see afresh his glory. Help us to know and trust afresh his grace and truth. And for those who these things aren't familiar, these things are unclear, we pray please you'd open eyes this Christmas time. For Jesus' sake. Amen.